Hello, everybody, and welcome to Documentation Not Included, a tech industry podcast presented by DNI Stream, the live knowledge repository for software professionals. And I can't say that with a straight face, even though I mean to. That's why you're saying anyway. it, not me, Josie, you see. <laughs> I love this. He throws it at me. But anyway, it is Thursday, 7 p.m. British time. We are live on twitch.tv slash DNI stream. I am Josie Howarth. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, who not only has a sentient beard, but also has a cat who meows really loudly. He's Chris not in the room Howarth. today. He's not in the room not today. Not today. He's, he's gone. Oh, what about the cat? Uh, uh. <laughs> no, he's not here either. Uh, yeah, so hello, Josie, and hello to everyone in Twitch chat. As always, please do get involved with the show. If you've got anything relevant or interesting or funny or any questions, please do get involved. We are live and we will respond to them as quick as best we can. Before we get going, let me introduce our guest, Phil Nash. Hello, Hi. Phil. Um, Phil is here to discuss test driven development with us. Um, uh, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit further, Phil. So please go go ahead. I'll try and keep it short because I seem to have made a bit of a career of um, intruding into lots of different communities over the last few, three years. But uh, I'm mostly in the C++ community, but I've, I've been in the, the Swift community as well uh, and also a bit in the .NET community, but not for a while now. And some years ago, I um, I wrote a C++ test framework that seemed to, to get quite popular. So I've sort of been riding my fame there and uh, started doing TDD courses. Uh, which seem to have been quite, going quite well, but I've been interested in that for quite some years. I'm also a developer advocate at JetBrains. So um, if you if you want to speak about um, any of our C++ tools in particular, but also uh, app code, which uh, you can use for Swift, I'm the person to speak to. Um, that, that, that's probably enough for now. Well, I'm sure we'll get I, into a lot more detail as the show goes I on. love the fact that he doesn't mention Clutch. The dimension what? Clutch. Clutch. What's Clutch? Oh, well, maybe I read that wrong. See, <laughs> when I was reading his bio, he says, hey, I've ah. written this thing. And I was like, he did Clutch. That's interesting. So and I didn't. Catch. Catch. In fact, uh, Catch 2 clutch. now. I'm thinking about chickens. So that, that was the... Um, That's Cluck, Josie. That was the A name of, of my <laughs> C++ test framework. Okay, so, so sorry, not only to you, Phil, but also to everybody else, whoever wonders, do developers have any idea what happens outside the four walls of their house? I am proof that they do not. No. But anyway, before we get going, we have our icebreaker question. This is a question that is randomly selected every single episode with the intent to get to know not just our guests, but also our hosts better. And for all of you guys who are listening, please let us know. And if you want to respond to us, do so on Twitter at DNI Stream as well. So your question for this week is actually a really easy one, considering all three of us are in love with music one way or another. What was your favorite concert that you have ever gone to, and why was it your favorite concert? Mm, well, I can answer that. this one straight away. Um, for wait, once. wait, I need to put this in my calendar. But press. I am going to offer it to the <laughs> guest if the guest wants to go first. So, Phil, do you want? Do you have a? A concert that you can talk about? I think I do. So it, I have a couple of candidates. One could be the, I think, 1988 uh, Pink Floyd uh, concert uh, from the Moment Relapse of Reason tour at uh, Wembley Stadium. That was that was really good. Uh, definitely a highlight. But I think I'm actually going to go with a much smaller and more unusual one from when I was living in Copenhagen some years ago. And I... Um, Bumped into a guy at the, the airport, uh, which had a taxi into London uh, when, I, when I was going back there. And it, it turned out to be the bass player for a, a band called Bond, or when they were playing live, who are actually a, a, an all-girl string quartet, um, sort of in the, in the, the line of uh, Vanessa May. And when they played live, he was, he was playing bass for them. So when they went to play in Copenhagen, uh, I, of course, went to see them there and I got backstage passes and went to, to meet them as well. And got a like right up the front uh, position to to see them playing, and that that sort of added an extra dimension to it. So I'm going to go with that one. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, while you were talking, then a million other gigs popped into my head, <laughs> I, and, and, uh -huh. and a million other like cool little niche experiences that I had. But I mean, 
I've had I've been I'm really into metal music, hard rock and metal. But I'm also I also like Pink Floyd. I'm into progressive music, like progressive rock, and um, I'm into trance and dance and classical as well. So I've got a very wide range of of music that I'm into. I think the most special gig that I ever went to um, was a bit impromptu. I'm a bass player. Um, I'm really into basses with more than four strings, five, six, 12, 15, you know, 16 string, ridiculous, ridiculous. Like I don't play them myself. I play a six string, but I don't, I don't play like these, these crazy ones, but, um, do you slap the bass, Chris? I have to ask this. Um, yes, but I mean, <laughs> if any bass player that, you know, plays bass want, that's why you play bass. That's why everybody Davey plays 504 bass. will approve as long as you have slap the bass you're a good man i slap my bass Let, let's so move on important. from this terminology i don't like where this is going um <laughs> right so People anyway who watch him on youtube will know what the hell i'm the, talking about the, con anyway, the context here is is that um i'm a massive bass uh, massive massively into bass players like jazz bassists and um just people who are who focus on bass and i was you know, all of this wittering on, I've actually forgotten his name now, but there was this guy that I was really into at the time. I have to remember, I have to try and remember it by the end of the show, but I was really into it at the time. I'd went to a festival in Hungary called Ziggert Festival, uh, which is in the middle of Budapest. It's on an island in the middle of Budapest. And I've been going for years, but one year I went into the jazz tent and I sat right at the front, meters away from like this jazz quartet. And this guy was playing bass and I was like, oh, he's brilliant. You know, he's excellent. I sat there. I've never seen this guy before. And then after the, the gig had finished, I was told, you know, they, they said, that was bloody blah, blah. I've forgotten his bloody name. It's really, you know, he's a really famous, well-known bass player. Victor but that was Wooten? No, no, oh God. <laughs> if it was Victor Wooten, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have forgotten him. But um, no, he's, he's a really, really famous jazz, specifically a jazz player. Um, anyway, right. I saw him. I'll have, to, I'll have to look through my music collection and remember. But that that was the most kind of crazy experience or weirdest because I'd been sat there looking at him going, oh, I'm going to have to look this guy up. He's brilliant. He's, he's really, I'm really into this. And it was someone I, I knew and was, who's very, very famous. Um, oh, okay. Well, see, I have a, I have a, a, a sort of a small problem picking mine, mainly because I have two concerts that I'm going to be going to this year, which I know are probably going to blow every concert I've ever been to out of the water. I mean, I'm going to see Holland and I'm going to see Rammstein enough said when it comes to live performance kind of experiences they're going to be interesting but i went to the original anniversary woodstock and um although that could very easily be up there because being able to be in that massive almost like half a mile size mosh pit for nine inch nails was kind of cool i think the best concert hands down i've gone to so far was a local guy a local guy here in the Yorkshire Leedsy type area called John Gum. He is a guitarist. John Gum. John Gum. You know, I know his mum and dad. They run a cafe he, at the end of my street. Do you know what's interesting? <laughs> my husband took guitar lessons, and my husband's guitar instructor had actually done some like jam sessions and stuff with John Gum. This is the beauty of like the local thing. You don't get this so much in the States, but being here in the UK, the local thing is crazy. But I've been to see him in concert twice. Um, and the experience you have with him is hysterical. There is nothing funnier than a guitarist sitting there playing, and he he does all kinds of things. He uses it, scratches it. His his poor little guitar has been through hell. But he'll be right in the middle of playing, pause and go, oh, man, i got to take a piss. Puts it down, runs to the back, runs back out, and then he goes back and continues playing because he drinks as he plays. Absolutely ingenious, hysterical, funny, so perfect. So, yeah, there we go. Now! That is a very long drawn out icebreaker. He's I'm actually I'm actually going to the shop tomorrow morning to get my that's where I get my breakfast butty from on a Friday, weirdly. But they, they I didn't know that. They they happened to be playing it one day when I walked in on to somebody and she was going, Oh, um have you are you into music, Chris? And I said, Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Exactly. No, I used to run a comedy studio, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And she and she said, "Oh, this is my son. Um, this is my son-in-law. Sorry." And son-in-law showed it to me, and I was like, "That song, I've got it. I've got it at home. I, I play it all. The it's on my playlist. Passion it's on my random Flower? playlist. I don't. Yeah, it was Passion Flower. And I don't. I don't know. I can't quite place it. And I said, "Oh, is that? Um, there was a famous, famous guitarist that I was I'd listened to that morning. 
Um, and I said, is that this guy? And she went, oh, no, no, he's called John Gorman. He's my, he's my son-in-law. And I was like, what? Weird. That's really weird. <laughs> really odd. Small world. It is <laughs> tiny. But he's from Blackpool. That's why they live, you know, that's why it's such a small world, because he's from this town. And what's interesting to me is he basically tours around Leeds because he kind of lives in Leeds now. Hmm. So, you know, we get the local experience quite a bit, of course, now as famous as he is, he travels. Although his story is about visiting China. Wow. Anyway. Let's get into the meat of our show and our topic, because this is what we gathered together to today to discuss. There's a lot of alliteration here and stuff, because we're talking about, you know, driving development on documentation not included by DNI Stream. So, Chris. Yeah, sorry. Do you want to ask Phil a question. Got, I got about... carried away with music then. I don't get to yeah. talk about music that much these days. <laughs> I'm no, carried talking about that and shit. <laughs> yeah, let's say. Uh, yeah. Music now included. There we go. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so as always, as always, we always start with a, a question to our guests. Um, I've got a couple of questions for you, but the, uh, I, uh -huh. we're talking about test-driven development. So I want to know what is your definition of test-driven development? Uh -huh. What's not, not necessarily what the benefits are, but what is your definition of it? An interesting question is there's, there's a few layers to that i think and it depends where, where you go in at so obviously the the expansion of the acronym is usually test-driven development but it can also be test-driven design and I, I find having that in mind could be useful because it's more about the design of your code rather than the actual development process so much but then there's also you know what what does that really mean what does it mean to actually drive your development or design uh, from tests and you know, what is what does the word test mean even Mm. Um, I'm sure that's something we'll, we'll dig into a little bit later. I think there's, there's a lot packed into those three letters that are usually overlooked. Um, and we'll probably get into, you know, what the difference is between TDD and BDD, um, where, where that's the same, where that's different. And I think that, that says a lot as well. So, yeah, I think the, the interesting thing about the definition is what it doesn't say rather than what it does say. How's that present? <laughs> The the absence of a, the, of what its terms are. That was a politician's yeah. answer. That that was <laughs> I can that was avoiding. Deny that. <laughs> <laughs> that was avoiding no, any was kind the... of def definition whatsoever. It's just yeah. No, but I, that, I think I think that's that's kind of a, 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 a he makes a good point. You know, when I first got introduced to the whole entire concept of testing and stuff, for me it was BDD, which is behavior driven development you know where you are designing with the intent to have your app behave a particular way in a certain use case that was like the way i learned about a test test period was that and i think especially after our wednesday stream that we did here chris or tuesday and wednesday because that's when i was around with you um there's something to be said about focusing on the design part of that so while that is a partial a partial politician answer. I think the inclusion of the word design actually shifts uh, uh, the, con the, the there's, there's a particular word that means definition, which has a subtext to it, which is very particular to a group of people, but I can't remember what that word is now. Interpretation. Mm, it begins with a C. Connotation. Ah. There's a certain connotation when you apply the word design hmm. instead of just development. So while still politician, Yes, I think there's something to be said for that. So for me, oh. the, the test-driven development is about um, it's about defining your code with your tests. In in essence, you know, it's about making sure that. Uh, I mean, again, I'm trying to avoid going into the benefits because we'll get there, That's and there's the a bit. there's a lot of the benefits there. Um, but that, what something something you I think both of you said there is the difference between BDD and TDD, and maybe maybe we should dig into that a little bit because okay. behavior driven design, behavior driven development. Again, I I have actually heard of behavior driven design more than I hear of behavior driven development, and I hear of test driven development more than I hear of test driven design. But you cannot do BDD without TDD, right? Would you agree with that to start off with? Absolutely, yeah. With everything that I've learned about TDD of late, yeah, I would. So, Holy cow, wait, we've all agreed on something. So oh no, the show's over. So let's, again, before before we get into the benefits, let's dig into a little bit what the difference is between BDD and TDD. I'm going to let Phil go, because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've got, you, when we were talking the other day, when you were watching our stream, you had, I know you had a little bit of time to think about it and, ch and, t and, and type, and I'm 
blabbing away on the stream, trying to chase my own tail. Um, but what what you've got a better way of putting it than I do. So what what is the difference? What are the main differences between the two? Well, I think the starting point is to realise that BDD started out as TDD done well. It was a, a particular application of TDD that tried to avoid the, the dead ends and uh, the, the trouble that most people get into uh, understanding and implementing it. Um, but I say that's a starting point because from there it sort of branched off into other things that would seem to be a bit beyond just the, the, the development part of it. So uh, an important aspect of BDD that's not really captured in TDD itself is um, is the communication side. Uh, you know, we talk about ubiquitous language, uh, referring yeah. to things by the same terms, depending regardless of whether you're a developer or a business person and so on. So everyone can get involved. Everyone can define what the goals are in ways that everyone agrees on. And then you can actually write code that verifies that. So it's that, that sort of whole stack all the way down gets captured um, just by making communication a first class part of the process. So I'd say that that's really quite important. So have you have you ever worked anywhere that that's been the case though? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I, I make sure that it is. Okay. Well, I, I love that. I love, I love the fact that, that that was the answer because I wasn't expecting that because I <laughs> I have struggled to work to to um identify anywhere that is able to have that ubiquitous language and be able to communicate across teams, not just between the technical teams, you know, the testers and the, um, the the developers and the designers and the architects, but also management and upper management and potentially even, you know, if you're doing line of business applications, other, uh, other people within the actual business, usually everybody's got a slightly different way to refer to the same oh, yeah. kind of thing. So are we, are we talking about specifically technical here? This ubiquitous language that, that we apply to BDD within people so the, who are the, the, where the BDD applies. The whole point of it is that it uh, transcends just development and you can you can get business people involved. Um, you know, assuming development is not the business, but... <laughs> yes. <sorry. laughs> uh, well, I worked, I worked in finance previously, so we had uh, finance people, we had maths people. Um, we had to get them talking the, the same language. Now, I should clarify that I'm not talking about implementing ubiquitous language in an absolute sense. Uh, it's not like everyone's talking um the the same language all the time even when talking about requirements um i think that might be a bit ambitious but mm. you can you know you pick your battles you say right here we're going to talk about this let's all agree what we're talking about and you might have a few iterations of that if if you discover there's some ambiguities or misunderstandings um you know sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but the idea is that everyone buys into that that's a good idea and gives it gives it the shot well, that's that's interesting to me because when I first, gosh, when I first got introduced to to BDD, it was when wireframes were being developed for a website. That is actually when I mm -hmm. got introduced to BDD as even an idea, a concept, or anything else like that. Because they're like, you know, when we go to do, do the tests, what we're actually going to be testing is the user's experience in this web frame like we expect a certain set of text to appear we expect a button or a link to function a particular way we expect all of these things to happen so the entire purpose behind it was from more the the visual side of things and that is actually what led me into learning about testing because at the time i wasn't doing the code i was helping with the the visuals on a site so having almost like a gateway into it because i'm like oh that's a thing you can do. That that actually is really cool. Let's see. Well, how do you implement that? Which is how I started learning about things like Gherkin and stuff like that. And it was that experience that made it easier for me to understand what was going on with TDD. Hmm. So going to that ubiquitous side of things, it's... it. You know how sometimes you have to phrase things a particular way for one person and then another way for someone else for them to get the same picture? Because yeah. when you teach, as we know, and when you talk to people, you're trying to communicate an idea. So if all you're doing is just, you know, spitballing stuff out of your mouth and not paying attention to whether they capture the concept of what you're trying to get across, you're wasting space or breath. But if you take the time to try to phrase your opinion, your thought, or your objective in a way that helps someone else understand it, that's great. It's almost like BDD was a way for me to understand and conceptualize testing, period. And because of that, it made 
uh, linking it to other types of testing so much easier because I had that, at least uh, for lack of a better term, gateway into it. So would you say that um, Agile and Scrum methodologies are heavily influenced by BDD or would you say they go hand in hand with it or can we do them separately? And it's mm. not quite the same thing, but when I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm thinking about design specifically in that world. So things like user stories that we create, user stories are very heavily user behavior driven. Yeah. The way that we write them. Um, and usually you get acceptance tests that come out of those when, if they're written correctly, you get a list of uh, acceptance criteria rather. And mm -hmm. then from that, you they can then, surely if you focus on the acceptance criteria, you can then focus on creating behavior-driven tests uh, more clearly and mm -hmm. you but but we're talking at a lower level when we talk about tdd we're talking about um executing tests that test the functionality of a particular unit of code whereas bdd right. tests the behavior of of that piece of code which is yeah it's it's, it's, it's so that's why I, I like what phil was saying Guess what, Phil? I like something you said. Because <laughs> <laughs> having that, um, having them kind of working almost in conjunction is kind of an important thing because I uh, I haven't had uh, to work in massive teams. I have always been lucky in the fact that the teams that I work with are either, you know, me alone, hi, so I get to do all of this great stuff myself, or someone else who's going to give me one piece and then I just take care of the rest. I've, I've been lucky that I haven't had to do the whole uh, mess with fighting with everybody. But to me, um, anyone who has ever been in the monitoring world to add another sort of perspective to things, anyone who has ever tried to make certain that their website has never failed over and is giving the particular responses they're looking for or alerting them if, you know, a 500 error is found or something like that when a page is tested, that's actually a weird form of BDD, but in practicality, because you're expecting a certain result and you're not getting it, and thus you're actually then triggering some kind of effect, yada, yada. So if you are someone who has no clue about what any kind of testing is, that's actually sort of a <clears throat> practical application of someone. It, it's They're similar. That's all I'm trying to say. Sorry. <laughs> so I think we, we tend to associate TDD with that sort of lower level implementation side yep. of things, simply because that's where we usually use the term. But actually, TDD itself is, is really the, the whole the whole spectrum, all the way up the is stack. Is it? It is. And BDD is just a particular application of that. It's, um, as I say, it's like TDD done well. But it's in practice, it's sort of staked out that those higher levels. So we tend to associate BDD at the higher level and, and TDD at the low level. But then we have ATDD, Acceptance Test Driven Development, which is that the whole sort of you know, out, outside in whole system uh, type of testing. And, and you mentioned acceptance testing. You can do TDD at that level because mm -hmm. really all, all we're doing is we're saying, right, here, here are our expectations. Let's stake them out up front in a way that we can verify. Then we'll go away and do the work to uh, fulfill that requirement and see that it now works. You could do that at any, any level and you can do it in sort of loops within itself. So you can start off with an ATTD test, uh, like an end-to-end -end thing. And then you can pause that for a while where you go and go away to the implementation and do TDD down there using unit testing frameworks and whatever we have. Um, and then when those tests pass and you've got a few of those working together and then suddenly your ATDD test works and you may have levels in between as well. Um, and this is what I, I've been calling um, fractal TDD. And um, until, until this week, I thought I was um, not unique in using that term, but it was something I'd picked up at some point and nobody else really was talking about. And then I found that there's actually a few other people talking about exactly the same thing. So I was, <laughs> I was using the right term, just um, uh, almost independently mm. because you, they're sort of self-similar at different levels. I, I just love the idea of fractals. So <laughs> when we talk about fractal CD, because until I saw the show notes for today, I'd not heard of the term fractal CDD. You're specifically saying that you're saying that fractal TDD is the all-encompassing side of, of test-driven development. Yeah, it's just the idea that um, you can do TDD at any levels and you can sort of nest it within itself. Right. 
that sort of self-similarity. Recursion. Thinking, yeah, recursion. For recursion, see recursion. So, uh, <laughs> so I mean, I was I was looking up some um, specific, because I'm a C-sharp guy, and I was looking up some specific examples of a test that would be written in a P BDD manner versus a test that would be written in a TDD manner. Now, the right. test that was written in it, I think it was a bit of a convoluted example because the TDD test didn't cover... The way that it was presented was that it was checking uh, the functionality of the test, whereas the BDD uh, test was checking the behavior of the input mm -hmm. rather than what the output should have been for that very specific use case, which was very low-level kind of TDD test. But it was a all it was was one line of code difference, and it was um, adding a counter, uh, adding a value to a counter, and testing the, the tick I think it was, yeah, it was just a standard counter. Testing the tick uh, method, when the tick method is called, the actual output would be counter plus one um, mm -hmm. or, or the original value plus one. And that's the behavior side of it. Whereas the TDD element, or the TDD equivalent would have been, um, we know that the counter starts at zero because that's a piece of information we, we know. And when we call the tick method, it actually becomes one rather than counter plus one. So the, the behavior side of it is the counter plus one and the TDD side of it was the, the fact that I'm testing specifically that it starts at zero and outputs one by the end of it. So it's a it's a rule that I'm testing rather than a spit. I mean, is that how, is that a good example? Because it, it seemed to me a little bit, I, that's how I write tests a lot of the time anyway, in a BDD manner. Right. But um, I call it TDD. The, the problem here is there is no sort of, right, this is TDD, that's the BDD. I say BDD is TDD done well. There's a certain set of sort of extra practices that um, that BDD picks up on and says, right, if you do these things, now you're doing BDD. You don't have to do them all. If you do some of them, maybe you're doing BDD, maybe you're just doing TDD. It's a bit, bit mix and match. So it's, it's hard to draw that line. And that there's two... Um, in particular, some technical practices that are most commonly associated with BDD, which are one, the structure of the test. Um, so I saw you yesterday, was it yesterday or the day before? Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday, which is yesterday. Yesterday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you were trying to um, sort of mark out the structure of your test with the um, uh, arrange act assert mm -hmm. sections, uh, which is a you know, nice general structuring for, for most tests. Doesn't always um, work, but most of the time always it's, work. it's, it's, it's a nice model to, to think about things in. If you're doing BDD, you are more likely to do exactly the same sections, but you're going to call them given, when, and then. Mm -hmm. They're basically the same thing. There's subtle nuances. It mostly amounts to the way you describe those sections. When you say, you know, arrange, act, assert, it's, it's a very sort of uh, like a rubber stamp thing. Like this is the arrange section, that's the assert section. Mm -hmm. When you write it out as given when then, you're actually writing a human readable description of the whole scenario. Given I have these things, when I do this, then this happens. And then each of those sections, you, you verify the um, that, that human readable description against the code that, that implements it, mm -hmm. which gives you like an extra, extra check. So you're doing the same thing. You're just doing it in a way that's just a little bit more helpful and just helps you to think a little bit more about the, the, the story behind code. So I used um, a, a PowerShell testing framework called Pesta um, a while ago for testing huge amounts of uh, mm -hmm. PowerShell what code. A great name. And it, that had a very BDD driven um, syntax right. built into it. And so do a lot of, um, uh, I think like, not Karma, the other one, uh, ja Jasmine, one of the front end TypeScripts, JavaScript kind of testing frameworks, I think it's Karma, um, has a, a way, that, the similar kind of way of, of putting, of writing tests. But again, you kind of, unless you're thinking about it in a different way, it's similar to the syntax, to me, the, given when then, is very similar to the syntax of a, a user story. You know, yeah. as a user, I want to do this. That, that's that's so, actually yeah. a, a pretty similar format to how I do, how I do user stories. I think, and I'm, I'm going to keep us along those same lines, but I, I do have a question because mm -hmm. um, of what we were doing, because uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, we've actually started uh, developing live stream uh, during a live We've live stream right. development. Ah, there we go. Let me get the words out. Um, and uh, the testing that Chris is doing on the DNI website, because uh, we're 
completely restructuring. We're refactoring from using um, JSON to using uh, the RSS. But while he was doing it, he was writing the asserts, theories, facts, like specific terms like that. I am from more familiar with the BDD terming. Can I ask more about what the things mean inside of that particular example? You know, what is the difference between a theory and a fact? What is the difference That's between- That's just terminology that one particular framework uses, one particular okay. testing See, framework. This is, this is something I'd like to know. So, so. in like, for example, in, in MS test um, or in N unit, they would call them test methods. Um, right. Whereas in X unit, which is the framework I'm using, they call it a fact. And again, that's more leaning Why towards BDD. Why do we all use the same terminology, please? Because it's language. Yeah, everybody's got a slightly every framework. Frameworks, uh, frameworks, oh. and languages, and everything appear because the last one didn't quite cover. <laughs> it's this XKCD <laughs> thing that we've all seen before. Yeah. You know, it didn't yes. quite cover that standard. Didn't quite cover all of the standards that we need. So let's create a new standard, new competing standard that you know it's the same thing the with thing. frameworks. As we know, what ends up happening, what happens is things go off. I mean, even in the case of BDD, a better version of TDD, and yet it has gone in its own direction entirely. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. So, what terminology does your framework use, Phil? So uh, I have something called generators. And um, more generally, people tend to refer to these as parametized or data parametized tests. And usually, like with the theories in the, um, uh, what was the testing framework? X-Unit. X-Unit, that's right. Um, they, they're usually um, sort of encoded outside of the, the body of the test case as parameters passed in. Mm -hmm. um, in my case with generators, I actually have um, variable declarations within the, the test body and then a, a C++ macro that has some machinery behind it that will produce a value and then what it will do is if there's multiple values to produce it will re-execute the whole test case for each value so you get the value at that point so did you see past did you see examples of theories then um yes yeah. so was it similar to a theory then what you're you're doing there uh similar um I mean, I, i've not used theories so i've only only really seen how you use them. Um, a, a very useful way to use uh, generators and parameterized um, tests in general is to be able to generate whole sequences of either you know, contiguous values or maybe random values uh, within a range, um, or sometimes just you know, sets of values around a, a boundary condition, which is sort of what you were doing. Yeah, so I was I was actually, the, the, the theories can be using lots of different ways in XUnit. The, the one way that I was yeah. using them was uh, was hard-coded values, you know, um, compile time values. But you can, you can actually create whole hosts of objects that generate sequences, that generate um, non-static data, that generate anything and everything. You can even have it reading from files and all kinds of things. Um, the same with facts, I think. I think with, with facts, you can actually, no, you can't, I'm lying. It's just theories in that instance, but there's also other parameters that I don't use that often. You know, I just it depends entirely on what the use case is. When I come up with a problem that I can't solve, I'll read the documentation, find something else that's suitable. You know, interesting. <laughs> wait, documentation <laughs> not included. Wrong show. <laughs> so the interesting thing about generating ranges or of random values for test is. You start to move away from this idea of example-based testing. We say, when I do this, then this happens, and you know exactly what you know. You're completely locking down the whole whole flow. To saying, well, you know, given any value, what properties hold? And it's a, it's a different way of thinking about things. So that's um, again where fixtures come in within the testing I was doing. The fixtures that are yeah, generated. That's slightly they... different. Okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll come back to that. But right. just to pull this thread a bit more, because there's a whole um, different type of uh, testing, different testing methodology called property-based testing. I don't know if you're familiar with property-based testing. So that, that is just this idea of uh, rather than come up with specific examples, I'm going to come up with properties that always hold. And then you just say, you know, give me give me some value. And then it will give you usually a, by default a range of 100 randomly selected values. Um, and a true property-based testing framework has an extra step where having given you some random values, so, you know, it filed for 6,351, which might be a bit inconvenient depending on how your, your code is set up. It will do a, a process called shrinking, where it says, oh, well, I, 
I found a falsification for this value. What's the simplest possible value I can find now that fails? Okay. So if it's, if it's an integer, it'll find the lowest integer. If it's a string, it'll find the shortest string. Whatever it is for the, for the type, it will try to find the simplest example of that, which usually simplifies your, your debugging step next in actually tracking down what the problem was. And because it's selecting these values at random, um, it's not going to cover the whole uh, space of values every time you run it. It may not fail the first time. It may fail the 10th time you run it. And when it does, it gives you the random seed that was used to produce that particular set of values. So you can reproduce that particular failure. And then you can go in and say, right, this was the simplest thing that, that now failed. So that, that's a completely orthogonal to CDD. Mm. Um, apparently some people have been able to use property-based testing to do TDD. Uh, I find that quite difficult. Um, and maybe I just haven't tried it enough. I find that they complement each other very well. Yeah, I was going to so, say, it feel, like if that was the only thing you were doing, that feels a little yeah. weak to me. Um, but eh. It sounds to me like yeah, like the code, if you, if you have to test that, then the code surely is not generic enough. It's not. But then again, it, everyone writes different types. You know, not well, everyone writes so the same kind of code that I write. So. Yeah, and and ev there are so many different types of apps and things that are being developed for so many different purposes. You know, it, it's the kind of thing where, like, would you use that if you were building the space shuttle and testing the software for the space mm. shuttle? Yeah, my tolerance, <laughs> my my tolerance of error in the applications I write is is you know very very different. I've got a much higher tolerance for error than than you know. Right in rockets or, or like yeah, because I mean, automobile I could see engines, like, you know, I could see something like that being incredibly useful for banks. Where I mean, if you screw up with numbers in a bank, that is that is someone's money. That mm -hmm. that is a bad thing. But the thing <laughs> is, is all, the rounding, but, yeah. all of the things that I do, I am usually quite pragmatic with it. I, I I make I did it today with one of my tests. I knew that there was some values, potential values, and I'm talking about in the in the billions or trillions that my test would probably have failed on so i'm talking about uh, there was a i was using math.floor um and doing some dividing um for calculating paging but for the podcast we would have to be in the num in the hundreds of thousands if not millions of podcast episodes to be published on the website before that would fail so it's not a problem <laughs> but it, w it would be a problem if if it was a different use case so i would have catered for that you know in a different way i would have i would have spent more time on it it's all time versus risk yes for, and tultepe points out uh, or automation which is what tultepe is in where your code do does things in the physical world yeah. is another yeah uh, so one of my big areas of interest uh, one of my passions really is is trying to narrow the gap between um being able to write something pragmatically and, and quickly without having to get too much too often into the weeds and writing fully um correct reliable resilient code hmm. because at the moment the, the, well there's always going to be a trade-off the, the question is how big is the trade-off how small can we make it how, how easy can we make writing correct code and uh, one of those things is, is you know just becoming familiar with with the practices using tdd goes a long way to making actually quick and fun to write correct code reasonably correct code but it only gets you so far adding property-based testing to that allows you to very quickly get a whole load of extra um testing coverage that that you wouldn't have otherwise has got just just by poking around yourself um there's still a trade-off there but going further than that and we're getting way out of um the scope of this particular show now but <laughs> maybe I'll have to nothing come new nothing um, <laughs> don't worry we'll throw you a life preserver We'll, we'll a, pull a you big, back in. Don't worry if it goes too far out. <laughs> I'm a big proponent of using uh, the type system where we have it to to make it impossible to uh, create invalid states. Um, that there's a the phrase uh, "correct by construction," um, and a, a language of a good type system allows you to very easily uh, create whole sort of domains of of types. That just make it almost either impossible or very difficult to create invalid states and very easy to to create valid states um sometimes called falling into the pit of success <laughs> and that, that's that's a way of, of really narrowing that gap between pragmatism and you know, full correctness i tend um, to i tend to have learned a lot of lessons I'm, I'm not sure if we're talking about exactly the same thing but i tend to tend to learn a lot of lessons about how to structure my code 
so my IDE is more friendly towards me when I'm doing refactoring and how to um, how to ensure that everything is strongly typed. We talked very briefly about magic strings. Um, uh, you you gave me an example of a an attribute that I could have used. I um, assigned it to oh, yeah. the uh, I think it was an assembly declaration. Um, but I had to use a string that was the name of the assembly or, or name of an assembly. And to me, I would that that to me would break things if I decided to rename some of my namespaces or rename my assembly for something because I would have had to go in and change the actual string itself. To me, that that is something I avoid like the plague. I said that, and we were talking about just before the show. We were talking about importing uh, embedded resources into C sharp projects, mm -hmm. um, and that's a magic string because that's yeah, a string that. Could, because that's a new thing coming into C++. Well, yes. Well, specifically, I was talking about the C sharp version ah. of that, and in, in my implementation, currently actually being used in uh, in the DNI website, is we use a hard coded string, or it's not hard coded; it's actually configuration coded, and read in. But it's still a magic string that would need to be modified if we did a rename, and that could that might not be caught, so you have to write tests for that. But anyway, so let's bring it back a little bit. Yeah. Let's bring us back into the TDD world. Um, we talked a lot about the difference between BDD, TDD. Uh, we talked a lot about what they actually are, but we haven't talked about the benefits too much, right. which I think is a really important thing to to discuss. Mm -hmm. First of all, I, I know there are a few people, quite a few people listening. I want to ask the audience um, to tell us who uses TDD as well. So while we're talking, put your hands up in chat. Who uses TDD? And if you don't use TDD, why don't you use it? What, what do you see your problems with it as we talk about the benefits? So, Phil. Well, before letting him go in, I, I want to jump in with and, uh, the thing that was the light bulb for me. And this actually was uh, reinforced recently, Chris, with you and I doing the live development stream. Because we were talking about, well, what tests should we be writing, etc. Um, one of the most important benefits that I get from the testing of things is that forcing myself to ask myself, what are the failure conditions for me? What is it that this particular either piece of code or in some other cases, this particular button <laughs> should do? What is the failure condition and having to, or of, of the function itself, or what is in, in this case, TDD, what is it that the function has to perform and then figuring out what those failure states are actually helps to figure out how quickly you can fix it. It's finding the, I'm trying to find the right way to say it because there was a way that we said it during the show and I was like, it, it, that's, that to me is like the pinnacle, the purpose behind it. Because of the fact that the first test that you write is always designed to fail so that when you go back and you actually write the class, the method, the function, whatever it is you're writing, the test runs and it should pass. So Actually, all all tests that you write are designed to fail first time. That, that's yeah. I think that's what I said. I you hope said that's the, what you I said, said the first test. You it doesn't matter what you said. But well, anyway, I, I mean, the, yeah, the first, all tests. The first, the, the, the first time you write the test, yeah. let us be grammatically efficient. I guess, but yeah, the first time you write that, that alone has caused that caused both you and I to sit back and actually look at well, what is it we're actually trying to do with this particular function or does this actually need to be broken out and in fact because of our discussion we you literally sat back and you went no these need to be dependence and dependency injections this this is, has to be written a particular way because of the things that have to be tested because of what we're looking to have occur and by not jumping in and just writing the code and taking that extra set of moments it actually changed how you were going to write everything. I just thought that was... Yeah, I mean, it, it is. That's. I mean, there's there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, I mean, Phil, what, what's your what's your number one or, or your immediate favourite benefit, I suppose, of of <laughs> approaching it, approaching code in a TDD manner? So um, for me, or it's more of, more of a generalisation of uh, Josie's point, actually. And it's one that I don't really hear talked that much about. So it's, it's interesting as well. And we, we haven't really described what TDD is yet. <laughs> well, we, we said it's test-driven development, but there's the, the, the very You gave the steps. politician answer, so yeah. this is technically your fault. <laughs> um, well, I gave the high-level definition, but when, you, when you're doing TDD, you always start with a, writing a failing test. So it has to be a failing test, uh, and you have to start there. 
and it has to be a test. Um, once you've got the failing test, then you can move to the what we call the green stage, where we just write just the code to make the test pass. And uh, emphasizing the word just, so you don't race ahead and try to write clean code and do it all, all nice and neatly. You can, you can just hack it together so that it works. And there's some other nuances there as well, we'll gloss over for now. Um, and then only once you've got it green and everything's passing again, do you move on to the, the refactor stage where you, now you do concentrate on keeping your code clean, applying design principles, deduplicating, all of those sorts of things. It's a separate step. And then usually we describe it as going back to the right, right, the next failing test, but I add an extra step in there, the are we done step, where you take the step back and say, actually, do we, do we need to do any more or are we just gold plating at this stage? I think that's important as well. So it's worth clarifying those steps because the advantage for me really comes in that these steps are not just like, you know, what's the next step? They are mental hooks that allow you to hang all of your sort of mental baggage on this particular state at a time and actually move into a different mindset. So you start, as you said, you start thinking about the requirements, like the design requirements and what do I actually want to get out of this to begin with before you write any actual That's your right code. brain. Yeah. Once you've got that locked down and encoded in a test, you don't have to worry about that anymore. The test is covering that. It's proxying it for you. Now you can move to like this sort of hacker mentality of let's just get this thing working down at the implementation level. And that's the only thing you have to worry about. So you can like bring all of your mental resources to bear on that particular problem. And then you, then you move into the refactor stage where you're not worrying about just getting it to work. You're just getting it uh, to, to be clean and, and well-designed while maintaining that same level of functionality. Before then moving back to that sort of design level thinking where you're thinking about requirements and what's actually expected of this and not worrying about the implementation. So that the, the key is in what you don't have to worry about at any particular time, freeing you up to focus on the things you really should be worrying about at each particular time. And that's what we're really bad at uh, normally. Compartmentalization. Trying to juggle, yeah, trying to juggle these different responsibilities. No, you, you just focus on one thing at a time and the code or the tests, they have your back for the rest of it keeps you honest that's so for me that's the, the biggest benefit there has to be a caveat there that as long as the tests are well written and you do follow the principles in terms of this mm -hmm. the minimal amount of implementation possible because yeah. sometimes i mean i actually happened to me today i was um refactoring a very old class this is the paging stuff that i was doing a very old class and right. i already had and i'd already written tons of tests for this this class but i wanted to implement it differently because it was an old school object, right? I wasn't, I didn't have an interface. I didn't, I wasn't going to be used. I hadn't used dependency injection with it. I just implemented it and instantiated it in previous classes and used it for paging. Um, what I wanted to do now was enhance it and also change it into this, this nicely inversion of control kind of compatible class. Um, so, but, but I started writing the tests and I wrote a lot of tests that, um, didn't test enough. They didn't test all possible states because I knew that it already worked. And I had to, I was kind of approaching TDD in the wrong way. I should really have deleted all of the code, started again fresh and approached it in piecemeal. But it's only because it was so, such an old class that I knew worked that I got away with it. But a lot of the time I would See, that, that that's That actually brings up an interesting point. You know, for people who may be just getting into programming or who may have or consultants or whatever who are brought in and they're thrown code and they're just said, hey, this is, you know, the application that has been written and your job now is to check out X, Y, or Z. If you come in and there has been no TDD implemented, no testing at all, and it's just this is what they left us before, you know, they walked out the door how would you go about implementing TDD in something that's already been built? Because that's kind of what you were just doing there, Chris. You don't, you don't you implement, had... yes, I wasn't or wasn't. I actually approached it in a TDD manner, which was I was commenting bits of code out and I was implementing tests and I was uncommenting it and making sure that it worked. What you're talking about is going into somewhere that has a probably a huge set of code that probably is all tightly coupled and <laughs> probably is not testable anyway. Um, of of very hard to test in a non-integration way, in a in a unit way, in a unit tested way. Um, 
in that instance, there is usually a lot of time that is needs to be spent to to get that into a state where it can be testable. Mm. I've done it a few times, but most of the time it's a case of right. This is going to take four times as long as you think it's going to take, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to be deleting huge portions of code and refactoring huge amounts of of information to get it uh, of code to actually get it into a state that is maintainable going forward, and I'm comfortable supporting as well. And and that goes back to what Phil was saying about the pragmatism, or you know, the getting it that. And this is also something you were talking about on the stream as well, Chris, is uh, sticking to the principles while at the same time, it's just good enough of a test. It's different because, when you're approaching a code base that already exists. That's the problem. That, well, that... yes. I mean, that, I'm not just talking about that. I'm sort of, I'm sort of shifting off of that and coming back in. <laughs> I, I'm bringing my ore back into the water here. But yeah, and and the only reason why I say that is you guys get a couple extra minutes to uh, spitball thoughts out before we have to move. Well, Michael Feather's definition of legacy code, which is really what we're talking about, is code without tests. <laughs> so it. whether it's whether it's code you've inherited from somewhere else or it's code you wrote last week or even wrote today, doesn't have tests, it's legacy code. I like that. Because there's no way you can really verify that it actually does what you expect it to do unless you actually go through and manually test it. Normally, you may as well automate it. Normally, people, a lot of people call legacy code code that they haven't written. Mm-hmm. Which, which is inaccurate, really. Well, it is. I, I actually like looking at it that way. If you haven't written a test for it, then it's legacy code. Yeah, because it almost certainly doesn't obey all the design principles of you know loosely coupled and cohesive and. And the further the further away you get from actually writing the original implementation, the yeah. less confident you are in yeah. in modifying that code or modifying anything that sits around it. Absolutely, yeah. But there are a set of techniques for working with legacy code. In fact. Michael Feathers uh, wrote a book called Working Effectively with Legacy Code. Uh, it's quite old now, but still very relevant. Um, some of it's specific to languages like C and C++, um, but a lot of it's very general. But there's also some newer techniques that are um, gaining a lot of traction because they're actually really, really useful. And uh, one of the most useful ones is uh, something called um, approval tests. Approval tests are a way of getting like a large legacy code base reasonably under test very, very quickly by just having a way to um, run the code somehow, probably end to end, and have it write out some sort of, think of it as a log of what it's doing, you know, its internal state or whatever makes sense that you, that you know about. Uh, maybe it already does this, maybe you have to build something in, something that you can capture ideally as text, but it doesn't have to be. And then you run it through once, manually verifying however you can that it's doing what you expect it to do or what it at least what it does now you say whether it should be doing that to another time you capture that as, as a file or a set of files and that's now your sort of golden master for what it does now they are effectively your tests if you run it again you can diff that output against the previous output and if it's the same then behavior is the same and if it's changed there's a difference the difference may not necessarily mean it's a failure it may mean it's an improvement that's why you have to approve those differences. Now you can actually go in and make changes with a bit more confidence that you can see the results, even if they're not local to, to where you're working. So that's a really good like way to get started I can uh, say working I, with, with an existing legacy code base. I understand, I mean, I understand how that can be useful, but I hate it. I hate that idea. <laughs> it sounds, I mean, I, I, I'm actually in that situation with with a client at the moment. Right. They've got a massive legacy code base with that isn't testable in the slightest, and they want to implement tests in a DevOps system. And there right. are a, a situation where they want to run. Uh, they're, they're talking about implementing essentially full end-to-end -end integration tests, um, but they're doing it at a unit level. They're trying to test business logic, and and it, it's it's hideous, but. There's not yeah. much we can do about it, you know, but that's a, that's something that I may, I so may there's approach. a, there's a framework called approval test. It's available for most popular languages, even C++ these days. Um, and what it does is it, um, it solves all of the tedious bits of that. It's a common format, particular directory layout, it automatically finds diffing tools, does all that stuff. So you can just 
follow its templates and get stuff up and running quite quickly rather than having to invent it all from scratch, which is what a lot of people do. Mm. So check out approval tests. Mm, will do. They may, you may find that helps. Interesting. I'm totally now going to take over again. Um, <laughs> this is definitely a big topic. So mm. for those of you who are listening, who have experience in this, get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts on it. And for those of you who are just discovering, we will have links in our show notes for you to check out. It's now, worth noting before we close the show that we haven't talked about half of the benefits of TDD okay. either. No. The, the, we've no. talked about a few. We haven't actually highlighted them, but there is a, yeah, there's a whole host of things that, that we can talk about. There. Yes. But what well, we are is we're, oh, no, go ahead, Phil. Have I was going to say, I do a, I do a two-day course on this where I just introduce it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's just the introduction, my friends. Pretty um much. Yeah, and there's actually um, uh, a guy named uh, Hi-Rez who does, um, who introduces people to Angular through mm -hmm. TDD or TDD Angular. And it's uh, actually really comical because he has a, a beaver who helps him teach people. It's really weird. I love them. But anyway, <laughs> we're, we are very, very much so at a point where we have to draw the show to a close, but we're going to be very quick. Our BYOM, our chance to just share some information, doesn't always have to be development-oriented or IT-oriented or anything. It's just something new you learned this week that you didn't know last week or before. <laughs> So just something to share with the crowd. Chris, you made the guests go first during uh, the icebreaker, so I'm going to make you go first here. Did well, you, you learn something this week? Yes, you already know one thing that I learned that I'm going to bring up today. Um, I learned that an M dash exists. Um, and I, I, I corrected There's... something um, that Josie wrote on something. I think it was our... Code of conduct our code of, code of conduct or community guidelines on the website and i corrected this uh, mistake which was a double dash um straight after a word without a space and it just looked awful to me i've never never seen it before and i was anyway it depends on the font you're it, using as to what you input but yeah it's a very uh, a very versatile punctuation mark that allows you to do all kinds of things so it's an m e m space dash Look it up if you, I, I can't probably explain it exactly because it's got so many uses, but it's something that I want to. I, I, I now I said to Josie when I uh, when I discovered it that I'm going to start using that, and I haven't used it yet. I've been <laughs> using the same. I just use dash on it. Uh, anyway, I just use single dashes, but I do need to start using it because it's a valid English. Yes, you have hyphen, n dash, and m dash yes this this comes from the fact that i work with writers these are the little yeah. tips trips and crazy things that you learn and some people get very uptight about that but i say you have to draw the line somewhere and this is why he'll be coming back on the show folks <laughs> sorry okay <laughs> that's all good so what have you learned chris you mean phil uh, phil yeah yes. i'm gonna say i've I just see, told I, you i literally looked over to the script this I've... is Oh, my God, are you sure it's not Wednesday? It, it's Wednesday, right? <laughs> well, I'm going to cheat and um, reiterate the one that I mentioned earlier, which is that um, until this week, I thought that I was sort of independently coining the term fractal TDD, but uh, now I discover it's a reasonably widely known term. It, that, that's fine. I, I can let you get away with that. <laughs> um, it, this, this particular week, I, I learned about Windows Shift S. Windows Shift S. Hmm. Yep. Windows Shift S, when you click it, it'll put a big old overlay over your screen that says select the screen you want or select the part of the screen you want to copy or put into your clipboard. So it's snapshot. a lot quicker than doing print screen or anything else. It's it's snapshot, literally. I I I didn't know that existed. Neither did I. And be considering the amount of things that I have to screenshot when I'm doing either documentation writing or I'm um, adding something to a ticket or something along those lines. I am, I've, you know what my friend has been? Alt print screen followed by earth in view. That's exactly Not what I anymore. do. That is exactly Not what anymore. I do, Josie. Um, I am now a Windows shortcut power user. <laughs> shift, Windows, Windows, S. no, Windows, Shift, 
S because you have to Win, yeah. obviously you have to activate the Windows button. But Good. Yeah, that's I'll, what I'll use I that because I use that all the time. I, I do that kind of thing all the time. It's really handy, and that's that'll be a Windows Ten feature, surely. Probably because I. <laughs> I'll give I you, don't know. I'll give you my <laughs> shortcuts that I use. I want my very brief shortcuts. I use Windows, left arrow, right arrow, and up and down to move windows and uh, attach them to particular sides of my screen. And you can, if you press Windows, left arrow, then up, it will move it to the top quarter of your screen. Quadrant, quadrant yeah. Yeah, so I'm f for my 4K and for my streaming, it's really handy to do that kind of thing as well. I've been using them for a while, but they're very, very, very handy. Anyway. <laughs> two tips <laughs> random tips from all over the chris you are overachieving this week i am wow i'll have nothing next week <laughs> yeah next week he'll show up and he'll just be this haggard version of himself <laughs> um, but yes we're at the end of our show thank you guys so much for watching us live on twitch and for everyone in twitch chat who has either watched and gave little comments but we haven't mentioned you and also if we have mentioned you uh, which we have of someone hi but yes, thank you so much. And for everyone who is listening to The Future in the Podcast, we do appreciate the time that you put into listening to us, not just ramble, but explore the world of development from a perspective that we hope is easy to approach. Finally, Phil slash uh, Chris, anti-Chris, uh, Phil, whatever it is I want to call you to, I don't know. <laughs> you know what? I have a rubber ducky. This is my excuse for everything. Um, but yeah, I hope you have enjoyed yourself, yeah. and I, I hope it's been entertaining. And uh, now I'm going to ask you to pimp yourself. How long have I got? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, good you, God. You could use all of the time that most of our other guests don't use to pimp themselves. Yes, so feel free. Like, we, we have some. We go, nope, I don't have a Twitter. Nope, I don't have LinkedIn. You can't reach out to me. I don't even have a website. <laughs> that is the world of the Batcave dev. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, on Twitter, I am Phil underscore Nash. If you just do Phil Nash with no underscore, you get another developer called Phil Nash who uh, has a very similar role to mine and we're often mixed up. So it will get very confusing. So make sure just one underscore, the underscore, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter. Um, you mentioned keyboard shortcuts. If you want to be really productive with keyboard shortcuts, you probably should be using a, a JetBrains tool. Uh, for your language so that's why i get that in there absolutely and and i am i mean i am a massive advocate of resharper i use that all day every day and it's brilliant wonderful tool and an unpaid advocate thank you for that uh where our tool type <laughs> says sea lion yep well sea lion is the the main tool that i uh, and hearts with. it all right yeah um, uh, he's, he's trying to convince me to get into php storm because right yeah yeah if you, if you want to uh, there's the an id side. for most most languages and uses. Um, <laughs> if I haven't entirely put you off, I'm also on another podcast that I co-host, uh, but it's a C++ podcast. That's a CPP chat. The URL for that is cpp.chat. So it's quite easy to remember. Um, and if you're into C++, I also run a conference, C++ on C, which is in uh, Folkestone in England. Uh, next one's going to be in June, so check out cpponc.uk. Uh, also, my test framework, Catch, which is Catch 2 now. You can find that quite easily. Um, I'll stop there. I'll, I could go on. But... <laughs> Do you have a singular website that everyone can use to branch off into the various corners of your interwebs? I have levelofindirection.com. And if that's too much to remember, I also have extra level of indirection.com that we do <laughs> <laughs> Oh, these links will uh, be in our show notes, but at the same time, holy macaroni. <laughs> so yeah, just go there. Okie dokie. Right, so time for our pimpage then. We shall uh, we shall end the show with this. Um, so you can visit our website, www.dnistream.live, where all of our links are probably broken at the moment. We're in the process of updating it and rebranding and doing everything, but it is, uh, you can use it to contact us if you want to be a guest There's on the no show. Testing. Uh, there, there is lots of testing, but it's just, it's not our fault. It's broken. That's the problem. Um, uh, yeah, so you can use that to get hold of our, all our podcast delivery platforms um, and... You can also use it to contact us for any reason if you want to be a guest. If you've got a question, if you've uh, got comments or something's wrong, you don't like the purple, the new purple colour that we've got in the new branding, just tell us. Just contact us. We need some. We need friends. 
Um, and lastly, don't forget to follow us on Twitch. We've had quite a lot of followers this week from doing the dev, dev things and we want to keep it going. Yep, um, I am now going to just take this moment and say that we hope we see you all next week, Thursday, 7 p.m. UK time, twitch.tv slash DNI stream, where we will be having a chat about compellingly actualizing cloudified web readiness, or in other words, we're talking about IR35. <laughs> what did you call it then? <laughs> compellingly actualized cloudified web readiness. Or IR35. I basically pulled up a corporate BS generator and just looked at it a few times. Because <laughs> that's the way IR35 feels to me. It's like, mm. click, click, click. But yeah, we're, we're continuing our deep dive into it with someone who has an interesting perspective. And that's all I'm going to say. Indeed. But with that, it is a goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. A bye from Phil. Goodbye from me. And a bye from Josie. See you guys next week. Or throughout the week when we stream, check out us on Twitter. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.